Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. Uh, this is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Uh, thank you for subscribing, downloading and rating. We do appreciate it. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Coming up on this week's programme, we're going to be talking about a new way of delivering vaccines because vaccine hesitancy um, was a big thing uh, and 10% of that was was fear of needles. But also delivering a vaccine via needle, you need to be a specialist, you need to be tra- have training, sometimes you need to store the vaccine in cold. What if we could just have vaccines you could just deliver by sticking a sticker on someone's skin? That's what uh, one of our guests is going to be talking about this week. Um, first, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and science communicator and biochemist Owen Murphy. Owen, our first story has to do with quasars. Yes, Jonathan, this is a really big story in the world of astrophysics and astronomy. So research from all across the world, a number of group of researchers led by scientists in the University of Hertfordshire and Sheffield believe they've answered a question which has puzzled astrophysicists for 60 years. So what is it that triggers the creation of a quasar? Now, before we dive into that, for most of us, including me, when you hear a word like quasar, I associate it with space. But going beyond that is maybe it gets a bit, bit difficult to understand the details. So the general consensus in the field currently is that quasars are very bright, distant and active massive black holes with millions to billions of times the mass of the sun. They're located at the centre of galaxies where they feed on matter which has been dragged back into the black hole and in turn release an enormous amount of radiation. So powerful that the amount of energy they can give off will drown out all the light of the other stars in their galaxy. Wow. Okay, and so uh, the the this research is looking at how they have occurred. Is that right? Started, yes. Right, yeah. Okay, so um, it's a little bit of a contradiction there, maybe talking about light being given out from a black hole, because the kind of what we always think is that nothing can escape, but the idea here is that these are very different to a normal black hole. So. Um, you know, black holes by their nature are black and cannot be directly observed by telescopes, but what we know about them is because of how things behave around them. Now, almost every large galaxy out there hosts a black hole. The black hole at the centre of our galaxy is said to be dormant in our solar system. Um, we know that they are there by detecting what's happening around us. So, quasars, however, are a bit different. Um, they have a special type of black hole which has plenty, uh, plenty full of gas supplying into it, which means it can be fed with material flowing into the black hole at the centre of it. So as the gas falls into the black hole, it spins faster and faster and faster. As it heats up, it then gives off an incredible amount of radiation. So these supermassive black holes in the nearby galaxies that we have, they don't have that much gas available to them, so we don't see these quasars. Right, So, and these quasars, are they the things that flash then every once in a while, and that flash is to do with the spinning of, of, of the quasar? Yes. And so, so why, um, why do quasars form then? Well, that's where the story goes. Why? So that's the trigger next. So why do they form? And this is where the research has gone. There's been 60 years of debate around it. What we know now is that having carried out the research, they found that it's due to actual collisions between far-off galaxies. Wow. So the study involved looking at 48 quasar ga- quasars out there that they'd identified and over 100 non-quasar-like galaxies. And what they found is that 65% of the quasars 
actually demonstrated uh, morphological changes which indicated that there was collisions happening. So galaxies were smashing into each other. Wow. Whereas only 22% in a non-quasar like galaxies. And we didn't know that before. We didn't know that, that these are where quasars came from. Well, it was highly debated, but this evidence put forward now was kind of put to bed the question and it seems to be generally accepted across the field. Amazing. Our right, second story, Ruth, has to do with building habitats on the moon. Yeah, it's getting very, very busy at the moon yeah, <laughs> at the nice. moment. So, you know, after the kind of golden age of going to the moon in the 1970s, there was actually no landings on the moon between 1976 and 2013. So really over the last kind of decade, suddenly private companies, governments, everyone's trying to get to the moon. And this, you know, we, we saw the Japanese private company, they smashed this week um, in 2019. The Israelis failed to get there. And in fact, the last three successful what they called soft landings. <laughs> That's the opposite of crashing. <laughs> yeah. These soft landings, the last three have all been from China, the Chang'e programme. So Chang'e, apologies for my pronunciation, three, four and five all landed between 2013 and 2050. Um, and But now the Chinese have announced that they're planning to put a human on the moon in 2030 and the missions between now and then are going to look to see can we actually put permanent bases on the moon. So Chang E, 6, 7 and 8 are going to head up there. And, and the main mission of Chang 8 will be to bring a robot that will be looking for reusable resources on the moon, but will also be trying to use 3D printing technology to create bricks out of moon dust. Wow. To see if we can actually build habitable stations up there using the material that's already there. That's really, really cool. I mean, what I know of robots and what I know of moon dust, this is a very, very tricky um, yeah. idea. So it'd be really interesting to see what they do. But like, what size, do we know any detail in terms of what size bricks? I mean, I mean how, they, how they're going to stick the moon dust together? Do you need to bring glue from Earth? We don't. So so this is something that was just announced in the Chinese press. So we have very little information about it. But you're right, like moon dust, it's like shards of glass. It's not a pleasant substance like concrete or sand to build with. But, you know, there's lots of reasons to do this. And I know some people will say, why are we investing in this kind of technology when we have so many problems here on Earth? But by getting, uh, you know, habitation up in the moon, being able to launch probes from there as opposed to having to launch them in our high gravity situation here on Earth, we'll be able to use less energy to to get things like out to Mars, to get space probes and rockets out to Mars. We might be able to launch things like nuclear fuel cells in spaceships if we want to explore further into the reaches of space. And that may help us to mine the resources that we need for things like renewable energy on Earth without having to do so much damage here. So it's really exciting to see the whole rebirth of the age of the moon in space. Yeah, and, and you know, in terms of space exploration or getting messages out to potential alien uh, civilizations, I mean, when we look at you know the rate of environmental collapse that we're talking about, maybe our only hope is hoping that a civilization will come along and tell us how to fix our global warming with science fiction. Very much. Um, our third story, uh, Owen, has to do with junk food. Mm, yes, this is a story looking at research carried out by the Department of Neuroscience in the University of Oregon. So they're looking at junk food, but what they found is that it's not just humans that um, suffer from the munchies. Worms do too. Now, a special type of worm which has been used for a long, long time in research is known as C. elegans, kind of habitus elegans. Um, very important worm because it's uh, humans, mammals, we shared a common pathway long, long ago and we diverge. But what that means is that there's over 100 human disease-causing genes that are still present in this worm, so it can be used for uh, model systems. Now, what they found here was that um, by soaking, soaking, and by giving them a bath 
in a compound which is a naturally occurring compound that actually competes in the same pathway as a THC from cannabis wood, that the worms who are given this will actually go for high-calorie food. Wow. Now, yeah, I mean, this is a really cool, I think it's a really cool experiment. So they're a specialist lab that have a, an assay that works off a tea maze. So they can put two different types of food at either end of the head of the tea, plop the worms in, and the worms will go left or right, and they can watch what they do. No way. So they got worms stoned, essentially, and then went to see if they got well, higher. Well, what they're saying is they don't know if the worms got high. But what they know, <laughs> they weren't examining, well, what they were examining was, did they look for high-calorie food? And what they found is that the worms, which had been given a bath, essentially, in this um, cannabinoid, would veer towards high-calorie bacteria, as opposed to the peers, which were sober, and they might go to the other ones. Right. I mean, could you monitor the movement of these worms yep. and see whether or not they, what, if, if they moved more slowly? They or, could. They could monitor. I think they monitored their munching speed even. And they had, oh, they, really? Yeah, yeah, and fluorescence and stuff. They had a number of different kind of um, uh, methods within that. Can I ask, why on earth would you bother doing this well, research? good question. So it actually goes back to the group when um, cannabis was made legal in Oregon in 2015. They wanted to look at what were the potential consequences as more people gained access to it from a recreational point of view. And they want to see now that we can actually use this as a model system without going into mammals very quickly, very cost effectively to see what are the potential effects of different cannabis products in humans. I see. Uh, and and that the, so, so like testing... The use of cannabis products for what? For anxiety? Yeah. Or? Well, or even just to see what it does on different people. So it's feeding into the, the endocannabinoid system, which plays a role in everything really we do, metabolism, food, right. all of these things. So what we see is that if they can actually use this as a system, they could test drugs through it. Drugs not just for cannabis, but other drugs as well. Okay, very interesting. Uh, Ruth, our final story uh, has to do with parrots. And I think this is a really lovely little piece of research. It's a lovely piece of work. So parrots, and it's about pet parrots. Um, but of course, parrots are really social animals. They live in flocks. They are very good at communicating with each other. They will help each other out. They're highly intelligent creatures. And when they're kept as pets, particularly when they're kept on their own, they're often not very happy. And um, we've all seen probably parrots that have plucked out their own feathers because they're stressed. And, and people do think that loneliness plays a big part in that. So researchers in Glasgow, in MIT and in Northwestern University wanted to see if they could reproduce social contact for parrots using video calling. So they <laughs> recruited 18 parrots and their owners from Parrot Kindergarten. And Parrot Kindergarten is an online coaching and educational tool for parrots and their owners um, to, to help them uh, train parrots and, and, and stimulate them. So they'd be able to talk and talk back and explain. All of those yeah. things, yeah. So then the birds, what they did, they first learned to ring a bell. And, and once they were able to ring a bell, that was the signal that they wanted to make a video call. So 18 parrots were trained to ring the bell and then they would get shown a tablet with pictures of different parrots on it and they would tap the parrot that they wanted to call. So there was a kind of trial month where they all learned how to do that. So they did over 200 calls. That was called the meet and greet phase and and they all learned how to do that. Now, three dropped out after that. Maybe they, they weren't so good at the meet and greet but 15 were trained and stayed in. So the, the birds then made 147 calls to each other over the course of the next two months supported by their owners uh, and the owners took notes on what the birds did and the re researchers looked back to, at over a thousand hours of video footage of the birds oh on my God. these calls. Oh my God. Yeah. Go on. So they found loads of interesting things. So the first was the birds did deliberately call each other. They had high motivation to ring the bell and they were able to pick different birds to make calls to 
the birds that called other birds the most got the most callbacks. Um, so the same no kind of social things that we see in humans. Uh, and, and they would also start to interact together. So they would do preening together on the screen. They would sing together. They would show each other toys on the screen. Um, they would what? do things like tricks, like hang upside down and then watch the other parrot do that. Um, so it seemed to have a really, really successful and positive outcome uh, for the birds that participated in the trial. And I think 100% of the owners said they were going to sign up to do continued video calling um, for their birds. Isn't that, isn't that a gorgeous bit of research? I, I presume they controlled for the randomness of these sort of things and they were able to identify what was an intentional thing and what was just a random act because well, they're birds. Because it was a two-step process and they had to ring the bell and then they got shown a number of options on the screen so they were intentionally picking the parrot that they wanted to engage with. And in fact, they seemed to also even interact with the carer sometimes of the parrot that was on the other end of the screen as well. But but like I guess what I'm, I'm asking is if I start preening as I'm, I'm a parrot on a call... How do they know I'm preening for the other parrots as opposed to I'm just preening? So, of course, they're watching back, you know, hours and hours of footage. So what they can see is the eye contact and the repeated behaviour and the timing. So it's not just happening once. So there's, there, you know, they could see the intentionality of the communication between them. And I guess the owners were a big part of this study as well because they know their own birds. Mm. Um, so they, they, you know, they have said as well they they were a key support in helping the birds to have kind of constructive conversations and they made sure that if there was any signs of stress or anything or if the birds lost interest, um, they, they stopped the call. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's lovely uh, that they are doing that. In a way, maybe it's sad that we've put birds in cages and we have to let them video call to be happy. But, you know. <laughs> Do you know what? I mean, I, I fast forward five years and these uh, poor birds are going to be getting social media etiquette, you know, training and uh, they'll have their own little... Well, they have Twitter already, don't they? Yes, welcome back to Future Brief on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae, where if you want to contact us, you can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com. You can text us, 53106, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Now, this week is World Immunisation Week, and yet we're experiencing a global drop in vaccination rates. And during COVID, there was a, a significant amount of hesitancy to vaccines because of needles. So what's the solution? Well, Dr. Anne Moore is a senior lecturer and principal investigator at Vaccines, at UCC, she's among those behind the development of a skin vaccine patch as an alternative to the use of needles and syringes. She joins me now. This is really, really interesting, Anne. Um, so let's just dive straight into it. What exactly is a vaccine patch? So a vaccine patch is where we have these small little uh, micro arrays of, of little protrusions that uh, are made of a, a sugar and uh, a little polymer that contains the vaccine. And once you press that into the skin, those little protrusions go into the skin um, dissolve and release the vaccine into the body. So we're hoping with this that it's a much easier way to administer vaccines so you can take away um, the need for highly trained uh, healthcare professionals. And also because it's a solid, um, you don't need to uh, have cold chain. You don't need to keep the vaccine in the fridge or the freezer. So it makes vaccines much more accessible to uh, to more people. So you get rid of, there's a huge issue around getting vaccines to where they need to be. And we think that this um, patch will solve that problem. And then finally, we think that um, with by giving the vaccine in a patch into the skin, we get a broader quality of immune response. So we're doing quite a lot with a with a very small little patch. 
Well, I mean, I want to talk about the efficacy in a bit because that absolutely fascinates me. But at the moment, a lot of vaccines, um, as you say, they have to be um, stored in uh, cold storage. And that was certainly an issue in, in COVID. Some of those vaccines uh, that were deployed, uh, there was worry about efficacy if they were if they went below, above a certain temperature before they got into the patient. And uh, it, it meant that some went to waste and so on. And the idea of this patch is that you don't have to, 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 to do that because... Uh, the the vaccine is solid, dissolved in sugar. Give, I mean, give me an example of, or give me an, an illustration of how deep this goes into the skin. So you've got your your epidermis is the one on the outside. Is that right? The bit that we that's correct. We t- does well, it go the, underneath yeah. that layer into the dermis, and does it, or does it go further, or or, or does it just dissolve into that first yeah. layer of skin? Yeah. So the skin, that the very very outermost layer of the skin is is uh, the stratum corneum, and that's a real kind of block layer of lipid it's very hard like most things won't go across that layer which is what you want for the skin to do you don't want anything to go into into your body through the skin so for big big um, medicinal products like vaccines we need to be able to get past that layer and then uh, so we do that with these little microarrays that that just kind of puncture past that layer and then we can really target where we put the vaccine whether we put it into the next layer down which is the epidermis and or we put it into the the final layer in the skin which is the dermis and we know that the, the skin has multi, has lots of immune cells. So one of the theories is that by putting it where there are lots of immune cells, you'll get a, a different or, or, or a, a different type of immune response. So really, ultimately, it's about just getting it past that very, very outer uh, lipid layer uh, that we all love to, to, to moisturize. But we want to get vaccines past that. Um, and then when it comes to whether it hurts or not, um, it depends on the, the length of that um, protrusion that we have. Um, you know, your your nerve fibers are quite close to the top of the skin. Um, so if you make your your microarray smaller than that, then it doesn't get to those nerve fibers. So you actually feel nothing. Um, now we actually don't know that maybe a tiny bit of pain might actually be good for an immune response. And there's there's evidence emerging from that from the from the people who love looking at skin. Right. Um, so so the idea that that yeah. your body is aware and there's a signal that there's pain that goes to the brain and there may be a a sort of a domino effect of a of a pathway that once you recognise pain, then then the immune system is is triggered or is stronger as a result of that. Well, possibly, it, like we know that the vaccine itself will work without uh, any pain, but and we know that the vaccine will trigger the immune response in and of itself. Uh, like, like we, I mean, when you say like, if you just had a cream, you mean uh, a cream that would get the vaccine across that outer layer of right, the skin. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So the, the key, one of the key things is to get it beyond that very outer layer of the skin, and then the vaccine is in the body and it will induce uh, an immune response if if the vaccine is any good, which which most of them that well, all of them that are used in in uh, clinically are. So the vaccine will induce an immune response. What what is interesting now and is emerging a little bit for for skin diseases, not for vaccines, is that actually a little bit of pain might actually help the healing process that happens for some dis- uh, skin diseases like um, psoriasis and things like that. Or if you have a wound. Um, a little bit of pain might be good there. So it, it's possible in the future, you know, a tiny weeny bit of pain uh, when you have a, a microarray patch might might be good. And, and so um, the the delivery of this drug, you said it, they're in sugar and then the sugar dissolves. Um, and because it's it's gotten through that first layer, it's into the epidermis or the, the dermis and that dissolves into the bloodstream. Is that the idea? 
Yeah, it's um, so that's it exactly. So it's solid uh, when it's outside the body and it's on the bench and you're getting ready to to put it onto the skin. And as as soon as it gets into the skin, which has much more higher levels of of uh, moisture in it, um, then the sugar and the polymer and the other the other ingredients that are in there will dissolve because they're in in a much higher moisture environment. And then the vaccine is released uh, into the body. Probably not into the bloodstream, although some of it might get into the bloodstream, but really it's sitting in the skin and then it gets into the into the possibly into the lymphatics and into the into the lymph node, which is kind of the depot. You know, it's kind of a draining site where it is a depot for all for immune cells to to kind of meet and figure out what's going on at the various sites of the body. Right. So really. It's about getting it into the body and then letting it do its magic. Okay. Uh, in terms of an immune response to the the patch itself, um, I, we know that you know putting foreign bodies in uh, in the human body um, often get rejected, even even metal ones. Um, is that something that could happen with a with a vaccine patch that you might get a re- immune response to uh, the patch? Well, no, because the ingredients that we use are all uh, already licensed for use inside the body of, of humans. Right. And we know that once it goes into the skin, it does dissolve and all of each one of those sugar molecules just dissolves and, and diffuses away from the site. So there is no actual anything solid that um, that remit, that goes into the skin. It, it all dissolves and, and diffuses away. So, you know, we... There, there should not be any reaction to the patch. Okay, and in terms of um, dosage, is it is it easier to to manage the dose uh, that's just, that's administered in in a single patch compared to an injection? Um, it's easier to administer um, because you you know you just have to put a patch onto the skin um, compared to when you have to give uh, an injection. You have to in, for quite a lot of vaccines, and we saw we saw this in 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 COVID uh, vaccine uh, centres in Ireland. You've got to get the syringe ready, the needle and syringe ready. You've got to take the dose out of the out of the vial, um, and somebody who's highly trained has to do that. Mm. Um, and then you know, actually injecting a vaccine, it is a fairly simple process. But at the same time, you have to be trained to do it correctly, um, or otherwise there will be you can have um, uh, side effects. So you do need quite a lot of training to give a, a vaccine by with needle and syringe. Whereas with our vaccine patch, you don't need any, you need minimal training to be able to put, put that patch, uh, you know, fix it onto, onto somebody's skin. And it's quite similar to if we think about um, polio vaccines, the oral polio vaccine, the sugar lump that, that a lot of us had when we were children. That's a really simple thing to do. Somebody just puts a sugar lump in your mouth and you're vaccinated. So it's similar with we, we hope with a, a skin patch that you just put the patch on. You don't need to you know, understand is the needle going deep enough? Have I loaded enough into the into the needle and syringe? Mm. Is it going to the right place? It's just put it on and you're done. Off topic here a little bit. Um, but w- when you are administering a vaccine with a needle, does, does it matter where it goes? Can you just stick it into any bit of muscle? anywhere in the body it, or, or or why do we do it in the arm um the I, I, that's a great question um there are a few different routes that are used to to give vaccines and the route really does it, it can affect like say for drugs for for a lot of drugs the route that you give it by will really affect how long that drug is in the body and how effective it is for vaccines 
it can matter as well. Uh, and we would usually think about that in sense of, of um, side effects, that if you give it to the wrong tissue, you might aggravate that tissue. Right. Um, and we know from, you know, if, if you're trained properly to do it um, and it's intramuscular, usually there's enough muscle tissue that it's it you won't get it um, too wrong. But at the same time, you know, not not every human is the same and the same muscle mass with everybody. So intramuscular is a, is a safe route, but um, you need to know you're doing it right. So you do need that training to to get it right. Um, why can't we um, do with most vaccines what we do with the polio, um, which is give people a, a lump of sugar? Why can't we do that for other vaccines? Why do we need yeah. to patch it all? Yeah, we'd love to be able to do that. And there's uh, a few companies that we're working with that um, are developing oral technologies. And it is a big focus now, especially with COVID, is how do we give vaccines either orally or up the nose so that we get that protection at that first uh, line of infection? And the big issue is um, the oral route. It goes into your stomach. And we know how how much the stomach loves to, to break everything down. So a vaccine will be degraded at the... the um, the acid in the stomach. And why doesn't that happen with polio? Uh, because it's a virus that naturally goes through that route um, ah. and is protected against that. So there's, there's a few, there's maybe two or three different vaccines, uh, like co- cholera would be another example that you can give orally. But for all of the other vaccines we have, they'll be degraded if you go into, into the stomach. So it's a huge area of investigation at the moment. And if for a lot of these um, newer vaccines, we need to think about ways of getting them past the stomach. And again, we can borrow a lot of understanding from our our drug delivery colleagues. But then what we want to do with a vaccine is actually induce that immune response in the gut. So we want to tickle the immune response in the gut. And again, you know, it's about that that balance between safety and not aggravate, you know, where you don't aggravate the gut but inducing immune response to 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 actually having a response because again the gut like we've millions of different things going through our gut every day you know every time we eat something we don't want an immune response against it hmm. so how do we tell the immune system in the gut that this is foreign and you need immune response to it so it's a big it's a massive area of investigation and it's difficult. Yeah, it's really difficult I can to, imagine. To, to strike that balance. So um, that's why we think the skin is is, is another way. <laughs> but but um, with the skin, um, you were talking about efficacy. I would have thought sticking something over the skin, it has, you know, it's te- theoretically further to travel. It's not being injected directly into the site, although I realize that with vaccines isn't um, necessary. Um, how could it be as as effective as a, a needle? And um, And what sort of work have you done on measuring efficacy? Yeah, so we've done uh, quite a bit of work in preclinical models on looking at efficacy for influenza virus, for malaria uh, and for for other diseases. And um, what we see is that firstly, you can get um, uh, as good, if not better efficacy. So when we talk about efficacy in, in is we challenge, we vaccinate animals and then we challenge them with that pathogen, whether it's a parasite or a virus and see if those animals can can uh, pr- are protected against that uh, pathogen growing in them. Mm. So we sh- we can show for sure that 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 with a patch, um, you can you can see go- really good protection against uh, as good as if you give it with a needle and syringe. And what for us, what's more exciting is that the immune response that you create is 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 what we call kind of broader. So it would be protected with by putting the vaccine into a patch into the skin compared to intramuscular, we set up an immune response that should protect against the, you know, the 
the and we're all familiar with virus strains at this stage, you know, an influenza virus strain that is in the vaccine, but also influenza virus strains that weren't in the vaccine that are quite different. So to use the COVID analogy that you would protect against maybe say like the initial, the original um, SARS-CoV-2 strain, as well as ones that emerged since then. Like and Delta it, and so, so on. Yeah, exactly. So but, but, by going by, by a earth, different route. How on earth does it do that? That sounds like a totally different product. Like, how does it protect against uh, more diseases if it's the same vaccine? Yeah, so it, it protects against more strains because we think that we're getting a, um, a, a broader immune response. So when you put the vaccine into the skin and just the way um, the immune response uh, emerges, um, you have lots of different, let's say, B cells that produce antibodies and T cells. And what, you know, en- during any normal um, induction of an immune response, you have quite a lot of competition that happens. And some of these lymphocytes will die off and some will really emerge as, as kind of almost the strongest uh, lymphocyte in the pack. And we think that uh, what's happening is that we're getting a lot of different, a, a lot more of our, our lymphocytes that recognize our vaccine are sticking around and they're they're also developing as really strong um, uh, lymphocytes that recognize the antigen. So we're getting more of those lymphocytes. And at the moment, we're, we're now going to um, pigs to see um, in a very relevant animal model that, again, we need lots of vaccines for pigs as well as for humans. Do we is that true? So we can we can really start looking uh, at a more relevant way. Do we actually see is our hypothesis true in the sense that by going into the skin compared to going um, in, into the muscle, we get what's called a more polyclonal response. And there are more cells that are recognizing lots of different parts of our, our vaccine. But we'll see. That's the big question at the moment. That's very cool. Um, Dr. Anne Moore, Senior Lecturer and Principal Investigator in Vaccines at University College Cork. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Now, to some of your comments from last week, we were talking to Dr. Marta Utten about visual illusions and, and how in the space of just a few seconds, our memories are reordering what's happened to make it make more sense. Uh, and that was really interesting. You can listen back to it in the podcast feed. Um, someone says, it seems counterintuitive that we would not see the world as it really is. And that was happening in the experiment. People were remembering a word or a letter reversed or unreversed when it was reversed. It seems counterintuitive that we would not see the world as it really is. But in fairness, we have a long track record in this area. One example of where we can see it happen in real time is with the simultaneous brightness contract optical illusion. It's a bit of a mouthful, but if you have a second, Google it. It's, it's awesome. It's simultaneous brightness contract illusion. So what it is, is basically it's a rectangle and it has a gradient that goes from black to white across uh, across the image. And then there's two dots one one third the way in and another two thirds the way in and they're the same colour and brightness but when you look at them they look totally different because your brain is adjusting what you see to try and make sense of it and it's a, it's a really great illusion it's called the simultaneous brightness contract um, you can have a look on our Twitter and you'll see a picture of it the writer goes on to say maybe we don't see things as they really are because to do so would be a disadvantage in the wild when trying to make out predators or other threats yeah we have covered this on the show before like if we were to, you know, allow all the information in and not filter it or make sense of it and sort it really quickly, uh, it would be overwhelming. If, if you walked into a room and you took in all of the sensory inputs without having the filter of 
of your brain just, you know, saying, well, focus in this one area and forget about everything else, otherwise you'll go crazy. It, it, it absolutely is vital, this sort of um, spotlight that we have on, on what we see and the, the sort of making sense of everything process that happens in our brains. Uh, and then we were speaking to David Walsh, who's a specialist in IVF as well last week. And someone says, Jonathan, is there any area where AI will not impact us? David was talking about how AI is now helping us figure out which embryos are good to implant. They, we don't know why they're better, but we know that they, the AI sees something that we can't, which is really interesting, right? The, the AI looks at an embryo and says, there's something about this embryo that means it's going to be a really healthy, viable baby. But the doctors don't know what they're seeing yet, but they know that the AI is right. And the, the emailer says, Jonathan, is there any area of AI where we won't be impacted? This is obviously good news for IVF, but I'm increasingly concerned with how AI will impact jobs and to a larger extent increase our dependency on technology to do essential tasks. How do you feel about all this? Look, I'm a, I'm a technologist and early adopter, so I'm, I'm, you know, when a new tool comes out, whether it's AI or something else, I'm always signing up to the beta to see what it can do because I'm fascinated by what we have achieved as a species. It's one of the reasons I do the program. I mean, when you think about just one generation of innovation and how that's, you know, speeding up and speeding and speeding up, if you just think 30 years ago, what we have now compared to what we had then, it's mind-blowing. And, you know, if you think of uh, grandparents who saw the first TV and some who might have even seen the first electric lights go on in their village. You think about that and where we are now, when you know, we're talking about things like ChatGPT, where we can have a, a full-blown conversation with an expert in any subject in the world and, and get good responses from that. I mean, we're in a really weird place. I have no idea. I think we're in a, close to an event horizon, the pre-AI and the post-generative AI world. I think we're right on the cusp of that at the moment. In the same way as the internet, I have no idea. What, what this tool, a general and generative AI is going to bring us um, and what, what threats it has. But, and I think people who say, oh, it's definitely going to do this, they're probably wrong. But what I don't think it'll give us is loads of free time. The, the image that was given to us in Up of, you know, slobs sucking on uh, Slurpees as they whizzed around in leisure because they had no jobs to do, that, that never has played out since the invention of the printing press or the machine or Samuel Adams, you know, all through history, any innovation has promised to give us more free time and very rarely does. So I think, I think we'll need to value what's human a bit more. I think, you know, performance will be a big thing. Human interaction will be really a very special thing that people go out and seek. Um, but I do worry about, you know, the mental health of, of us really relying on these tools to do everything for us and, letting our brain atrophy in areas like creativity or grammar or maths or whatever it is. So I think good and bad things will happen, which is a fairly safe bet, isn't it? And finally, James on Twitter says, Hi, as always, a totally relaxing, brilliant show. It set me up for the day. Well, thank you very much, James. You set me up for the day. Uh, that's it from us on this week's programme. Thanks to Marais O'Sullivan, Steve Daunt, Simon Keane and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime... Stay curious.